In the wake of Star Wars, a number of science fiction projects washed up in cinemaplexes, flea pits and cheapo video stores that may not have gotten anywhere near the surf without the massive success of George Lucas's little independent film. Some took their influence from the same place, Kurosawa, and adapted another of his movies, The Seven Samurai, a move that resulted in the far better than it had any right to be battle beyond the stars. Others looked to loftier literary sources and came up with the truly awful The Shape of Things to Come. TV got in on the action, with Battlestar Galactica and Buck Rogers in the 25th century serving up tasty TV-sized treats every week. But a number of movies from this time period, say 1978 to 1985, delivered solid, entertaining, perhaps even innovative movies that, for whatever reason, didn't find an audience. Or... A big enough audience anyway, but are deserving of your time. Here then, five great movies that followed in the wake of Star Wars. Movies that, you know, may not have the best reputation, but have something to recommend them. Number five, Dune. Okay, Dune is perhaps not a great movie. It's not even a good movie. It is, however, an interesting movie. For one, it's a David Lynch movie, and by definition, David Lynch movies are interesting. Dune is also visually very impressive. If you've ever seen any of the sci-fi channel telemovies based on Dune, you know that it can look pretty shonky. What Dune isn't, though, is coherent. Unless you're paying a great deal of attention, or have read the book, Dune is pretty hard to follow. Yet, hard though it may be to believe now, at the time, Dune was seen as a sure thing. The producer, Dino De Laurentiis, was notorious and tenacious. His choice to direct, David Lynch, curious one. A critical darling who turned down Return of the Jedi. How would he fare, helming an unfilmable book with a huge budget and a lot of attention to detail? But the larger question was, how could it fail? It wasn't seen to fail. They'd already started working on June 2 when the film was released. And yet, fail it did. Because Dune is a well-known and much-beloved book, but if you've ever tried to read it, you'll know it's... Well, it's a bit of a slog. Distilling its rather convoluted plot into one two-hour film edited down still quite heavily from either four or three hours, depending on who you believe, wasn't going to help with the popcorn crowd's understanding of the material. Author Frank Herbert's story of galactic empires, personal force fields, and spaceships that can travel faster than the speed of light, but only when you are so high on spice that you can fold space with your mind, isn't arguably a mainstream proposition. The cast do their best. Kyle MacLachlan, in his first role, loved the book, so at least the lead had some idea what was going on. Supporting roles are filled admirably by Francesca Annis, Patrick Stewart, Dean Stockwell, Jose Ferrer, Virginia Madsen, Brad Durf, and Sting in a nappy. Ultimately, 
Dune is a failure. David Lynch considers Dune a failure. The audience of the time agreed that it was a failure. Dune is the only movie Lynch won't return to. Any special editions you may come across are made without his approval. But because it's a David Lynch film, that makes this somewhat essential. It's interesting more than good, provocative more than entertaining, but seeing one of the most daring and inventive filmmakers currently alive trying to make a crowd-pleasing science fiction popcorn muncher is worth it. Just. Number four, Enemy Mine. Enemy Mind stars Lewis Gossett Jr. and Dennis Quaid. He had another in a long line of inoffensive-looking brown-haired pretty boys. And Lewis Gossett Jr. headlined 1985's Enemy Mine, directed by Wolfgang Peterson and adapted from the Barry Longyear story by Edward Kimara. On the face of it, it's a sci-fi tale as old as time. Well, 1979, anyway. Two enemies from war are forced to work together after crash landing. If they can't get over their differences, they will die. Stop me if you've heard this one before, right? The basic plot of the 1979 novella was inspired by 1968's Hell in the Pacific, where the protagonists were Henry Fonda and Tishoro Mufune. A 1970 episode of UFO saw that series transfer the idea to science fiction. And a 1980 episode of Battlestar Galactica, The Return of Starbuck, a subject of one of these shows very much in its early days, plus two episodes of Star Trek, one from The Next Generation and one from Enterprise, both did the same. So, Quaid is Davich, an Earth fighter pilot. We're at war with the Drac over disputed territory. They both crash and are forced to rely on each other to survive. You were ahead of me there, weren't you? Things are complicated when the Drac falls pregnant. Okay, maybe you didn't see that bit coming. The cast both work well together. It's essentially a two-hander, so that was kind of essential. And Quaid and Gossett Jr. play off each other admirably, despite Quaid's character being the absolute worst. He's the embarrassing tourist who shouts at anyone who speaks a different language, as if that will somehow make communication more effective. He's frequently boorish, obnoxious and irritating. It's telling that it's the Drac who learns to speak English rather than the Earthman who learns to Drac. Enemy Mine was a flop upon release, something it has in common with Dune, and had 13 minutes cut from it for its European release, as if hacking it down would somehow make it better. That was the version I first saw when this came out. I don't recall the cuts now, but I always assumed they were from the last 20 minutes, which is incredibly rushed. But no, the last 20 minutes are incredibly rushed. The effects are a fun throwback to model work being used for space dogfights, but they look cheaper than earlier TV efforts such as Battlestar Galactica and Space 1999. Things didn't improve much when our characters crash land, stranded upon what looks like a very unconvincing soundstage, despite heavy location filming in Lanzarote. I half expected Will Robinson to come round the corner. Despite its flaws, though I like Enemy Mine, its flaws don't stop it from being effective, and Enemy Mind's message of tolerance and understanding is sadly still relevant today. Quaid eventually learns Drac, comes round to accepting others and others' ways of life, even shows a more considerate side in the final act. The film's descent into a bit of an action panto is disappointing, and it is incredibly depressing 
although totally within character, that the first thing man does when on an alien world is apparently drop litter everywhere, discarding bloody Pepsi cans everywhere. They deserved everything they had coming to them. Forget the pedestrian sequences and instead focus on the characters. You'll find a lot to enjoy in Enemy Mine. It's not subtle, but it is effective. Number three, The Black Hole. There was a lot of hype around The Black Hole. It was Disney's cash-in on Star Wars. It was the first Disney film to be a PG. And in the end, it ended up not being what we think of from a Disney film at all. And I think that's why it failed. On the face of it, it has kiddie elements. Vincent and old Bob are the C-3PO and R2-D2 analogues. The robots fire laser guns and look similar to Darth Vader. And the main villain is also an evil robot, if we ignore the Bond villainy of Maximilian Schell as Hans Reinhardt. But if we ignore the rapping, it's quite a dark film. This Disney kid's knockoff deals with themes of mortality and concepts like heaven and hell. And sure, the ending doesn't make any sense, but it allows for interpretation, which has given it a curious longevity. The design work is exemplary, the special effects likewise. The cast are all genuinely good. Robert Forster should have been a bigger star than he was, as he's always solid and dependable. Ernest Borgnine brings his brand of extrovert hamming to the procedure and is as watchable as ever. And Anthony Perkins lends a level of gravitas to his role that one would not have expected or received from a lesser actor. But for kids, this level of serious science fiction wasn't what they wanted at the time. There's a lot of talky bits and philosophy. Now, I know people have said that the black hole isn't serious science fiction, that the science is woefully inaccurate, and that even Alan Dean Foster, who novelised the movie, felt the need to change the ending in an attempt to at least try to make it somewhat logical. But the black hole got me at the right time. It was a borderline horror film for kids that worked, at least. It did for 10-year-old me when it received its TV premiere. It arguably paved the way for films like Event Horizon and Sunshine. Number two, Star Trek, the motion picture. Oft derided, oft ignored, Star Trek, the motion picture is nevertheless deserving of reappraisal. For one, to do a film made in 1979 that's more redolent of 2001 A Space Odyssey than of Star Wars deserves accolades. For two, that Star Trek, the motion picture exists at all is a minor miracle. In fact, into the alternative future of the series for all mankind, it doesn't exist. Here, though, it does, and I, for one, think it worthy of its place in the canon. Star Trek The Motion Picture, like most of the other films on this list, does not exist without Star Wars. Star Trek's popularity had only grown since the cancellation of the TV show in 1969, but when it was scheduled to return as Star Trek Phase Two, it was as a new television series. Star Wars changed all that, as it did many things. With the phenomenal success of Lucas's space opera, Paramount Pictures decided to move Star Trek forward as a film, and everything immediately went straight to hell. Perhaps they'd been watching The Black Hole. There was no completed script, incomplete special effects, actor input, and overall chaos on the bridge meant Star Trek almost missed its release date. And as such, what was seen in theatres was not director Robert Wise's vision for the film. An expanded version seen on TV allowed the audience to see some of what Wise had intended, some additional character moments and further insight into the story, and these glimpses of what could have been saw a resurgence in interest in the film. 
for its 21st anniversary in the year 2000, the definitive director's edition overseen by Wise was released. This was further expanded upon for an HD release some 22 years after that. What emerged was vindication for some, proof positive for others, that Star Trek the motion picture was either a colossal failure or a movie worthy of another look. Trek the Motion Picture has, I think, a lot to recommend it. A career best score from Jerry Goldsmith, with themes that would be recycled for years to come, with the Klingon theme being repurposed for the character of Worf in future movies. The opening theme, albeit in a less grand-sounding form, would open Star Trek The Next Generation every week for seven years. Mostly excellent special effects from Doug Trumbull took Star Trek from the realm of pretty decent TV show effects, into playing in the big leagues. There's great design work across the board. But the play's the thing. The story, off maligned, is actually pretty strong with discernible character arcs for the main characters, Kirk, Spock, Elia, and Decker. The Vija material doesn't work quite as well, but kudos to the film for even asking humanity, is this all that we are? Is there nothing more? Nobody was coming out of ten and questioning their life choices. Unless that life choice was, why did I go watching ten? The naysayers would argue Star Trek The Motion Picture has a lot to not recommend it as well. It's a bit slow in its last hour, although nowhere near as bad in the director's edition than in earlier versions. It's very stagey, really venturing off the bridge of the Enterprise for a great deal of its runtime, and the look is very 70s beige. But if you're open to it, if you think Star Trek is a little bit more than Captain Kirk jump-kicking aliens and ripping his shirt, or you're open to the idea of wondering what may be out there, or even if you just like to imagine a society where you lounge around in your pyjamas all day, then Star Trek The Motion Picture may be the flick for you. For my money, it's better than any of the Next Generation movies, and if nothing else, it proves that things can happen against the odds. Then... Ten-year-old TV shows didn't get made into big-budget movies, certainly not with the same cast. Still incredibly rare nowadays. The human adventure was just beginning, but Roddenberry had loftier goals than Hollywood, who took this template and made a film based on Baywatch. Number one, The Last Starfighter. Of all the films on this list, The Last Starfighter was the one that should have been a success. Sadly, despite making double its money back, being remarkably well remembered, and rentals that must have brought in at least that much money again, The Last Starfighter never got a sequel. I remember this film fondly. It was advertised heavily in the comic books of the time, was previewed frequently on TV film shows, and was a film everyone I was at school with saw. And yet... Film follows a simple premise. A young lad who yearns for excitement, or at the very least to escape the humdrum life he leads, is whisked off for more than he can dream of when an avuncular old bloke arrives and takes him on the adventure of a lifetime. As with Enemy Mine, it's a pretty familiar story, but the differences are what makes the last Starfighter sore. The young lad is a trailer park kid called Alex Rogan, played with charm by Lance Guest. The old bloke is Centauri, a fast-talking Robert Preston, and the adventure is in space. See, Alex is the king of the arcade game The Last Starfighter, which turns out to be an intergalactic recruitment drive. Without so much as a by-your-command, Alex is suddenly a pilot in a gunstar, 
fighting against Zur and the Kodan Armada for the future of the galaxy. Guest is supported ably by the lovely Catherine Murray Stewart as his girlfriend Maggie, a wonderful Dan O'Herley as Grig, Alex's co-pilot, and a fair few other familiar faces. What sets The Last Starfighter apart, though, are the small things. You know, good characterization, a great score, likeable actors, all that good stuff that allows you to look past the relatively familiar story and see the film that was put together and see a film that was put together with care and attention. That attention was mostly grabbed by the SFX, which were, for the time, groundbreaking in the use of computer graphics. But SFX can't carry a lacklustre movie. The Last Starfighter works because we like and care about Alex and Maggie. We want him to get what he needs because we need it as well. The relationships between the characters are well drawn. Alex's NUI is perfectly displayed in the scene where he mouths along to a conversation between two older guys, implying he's heard all this before and he'll hear it all again, unless he gets away. Centauri is a lovable con man, and Alex is offered sage advice from Grig. Like Lewis Gossett Jr. in Enemy Mine, O'Herley deserves credit for creating a character behind a face full of latex. The film's only misstep is resurrecting Centauri at the end, a move that feels like a sop to a studio who wanted him around for any potential sequel. The Last Starfighter is that rare film in that it leaves the story open for a sequel that we actually want. What happened to Alex and Maggie? Did they succeed? How did they succeed? So many questions, no answers. Sequels have been mooted, with the most recent movement being in 2021, when a concept reel was posted on YouTube for a film called The Last Starfighters. But as of this recording, nothing has eventuated. Which is a shame. Of all the films on the list, this is the one that works best as a film, with none of the flaws of the others that make you go, yeah, I can see why that didn't quite work. The Last Starfighter does work, and it would be nice to see where the story went after this. Okay, I was recently sent a copy of Wavelengths, covering sci-fi in every reality by Daniel A. Dickholtz. It's an absolutely brilliant book, written in the form of the old Sterlog magazines. I think, I could be wrong, but I think you can actually get it in magazine format as well. This is in book format. It is written, as I say, in the style of Sterlog. Daniel did used to write for Sterlog magazine. So he captures the tone and cadences of the way Starlog would write their articles absolutely beautifully. It's a beautiful pastiche. But he's even got the letters in here. He's got letters pages in here from various different readers. And they, again, perfectly capture the tone of the old Starlog magazines. What it is, is every issue is basically... A alternate reality where something happened differently to the way that we are used to it happening. Some of the more fascinating ideas in it, one of my personal favourites, was an entire chapter interview with George Lucas in a universe where Star Wars didn't take off as well as it did here. And he's very despondent after Star Wars failed. They did make Splinter of the Mind's Eye as a film it didn't do anything commercially and lucas has ended up working for a, a schlock direct to dvd horror company and he seems quite happy making these films 
But it's fascinating to look at the idea of a world where Star Wars didn't happen. And what you have, though, is an entire franchise of movies starring Tom Cruise based on Edgar Rice Burroughs' John Carter of Mars books, which I would pay to see, to be brutally honest with you. You've got George Clooney as Indiana Jones in a series of movies similar to the James Bond franchise. So it isn't just one movie every three years. Clooney carried on making them throughout the decades. What's more interesting, though, is that each issue kind of branches off from a different place. So another fascinating idea is that Gene Roddenberry's other stuff after Star Trek, Genesis 2 and the Quester tapes, sold and they became series. And because of that, he didn't need Star Trek to come back. So Kenneth Johnson was given Star Trek to work on Star Trek The Next Generation. And as with everything Kenneth Johnson, although he wasn't a big Star Trek fan, he approached the job as a professional. And he looked at what worked and he looked at what didn't. And he made a successful Star Trek series. Following the debacle with V, which happened in this alternate universe, the same as it did here, Paramount approached Johnson in early 93 to take on Star Trek. And Johnson accepted the proposition as Paramount promised him they would do it like he wanted to do V as a series of mini-series rather than a weekly series. Johnson threw himself into it. He adapted some of the phase two scripts before he essentially made the show his own. He didn't keep the same cast. He didn't keep them all in the same place like the movies did. He promoted them and moved them off. You know, So eventually Kirk and Spock were promoted off the bridge of the Enterprise and new characters were brought in. And this version of Star Trek The Next Generation lasted from 1984 to 1991. And it's, I want to see that series. I want to see Ken Johnson's take on Star Trek. Because unlike the J.J. Abrams stuff, whilst Johnson has said he's never seen an episode of Star Trek, if he was given the gig, you know that he would take it seriously and he would do it properly. The other fascinating ideas that I thought that were mentioned in here, in addition to the Princess of Mars series that Tom Cruise oversees, is just like lots of throwaway lines, like Tom Selleck starring in a, a, a version of Battlefield Earth in 1979, just before he gets Magnum P.I. So he stars in this series of successful science fiction shows run by Roddenberry. And therefore, this universe's magnum is completely different. So that was absolutely fascinating. But the two ones that spoke to me the most. I'm a big fan of the original Battlestar Galactica and the new one, which I think is great. And But Rogers, both of which I acknowledge are incredibly flawed shows. But in one alternate reality that Daniel talks about, But Rogers' second season was de developed by David Gerald. And as such, it became a success because he opens it with a, a couple of telly movies adapted from the Book Rogers novellas, Armageddon 2419 AD and The Earl Lords of Han. And that sends Book off on a completely different trajectory where he's not just ripping off Star Trek. It takes the idea 
of those novels, book exploring the ruins um, of Earth and the, the vast separation between the haves of the Earth Defence Directorate and the have-nots of the people who are surviving on the outside, the ones that haven't become murderous mutants. And it ends up with him confronting the Earth Directorate and saying, why have you never done anything about these people? Why have you just let them out there while you live in essential luxury in your computer-ran society? And it puts him at odds with Dr. Hewer and Wilma Deering, who just become recurring characters at that point. And this sounds like such a fascinating idea because his quest is to walk the Earth like Cain from Kung Fu, but to find pockets of civilization him and tweaky take to looking up civilized societies and pointing them towards the earth defector and saying if you go over there you can live a better life but also to find potential relatives the book has and as the book mentioned this is an open-ended quest you know just because he finds a couple of established locations with people that haven't become raging murderoids and just because he finds a person who may be distant related to him doesn't mean that he's not going to find more and uh, according to this alternate reality, the show ran for three seasons and even Gil Gerard was happy with the direction. So that works well. What really sells it, though, are the little throwaway lines like that Patrick Stewart following June and Life Force was cast as Lex Luthor in Superman. In a, this is a universe where the X-Files doesn't happen or it didn't happen as successfully as, as it did here or maybe it did. But Chris Carter went on to other things and Chris Carter developed a new Batman series. And Patrick Stewart also played Mr. Freeze in that, which was fascinating. Harlan Ellison's Dream Corridor became a television series on HBO ran by J. Michael Straczynski. And there's all these little throwaway lines in it that make you stop for a second and go, that's okay. You've got another alternate reality where Star Wars did take off. But Lucas carried on going forward. So here you've got, you've got him plotting Star Wars 21. But he's never gone back and done the prequels. He's never gone back and done one, two, and three because he's never had time. So he's going to do the prequels now as a series of novels. And the Indiana Jones series in this reality just stirs Sean Patrick Flannery rather than Harrison Ford. It doesn't say whether that's because of the television show Young Indiana Jones. And again, as you go through it, it's just all these other ideas that make that really sell it. Battlestar Galactica did go to a season two because Isaac Asimov was brought on board to retool and redevelop the show. This really happened in our universe. In this universe, it took off. And although Asimov wasn't a fan of the six-hour opener that he developed the ideas for, the teleplay that was developed for that, he then wrote that into a hardback novel and explored on his ideas of what Galactica Discovers Earth should have been. And all of these things just make you go, I wish we'd seen that, or I wish we'd got that, or I wish I could read that. It's it's an absolutely fascinating book. It probably does work better as magazines, because um, in a book form, I'd read the first bit where, okay, Star Wars didn't work here, and then I got to the next chapter where Star Wars did happen. And you're like, oh, okay, right, mind adjustment. Whereas in a magazine, you're reading a completely different thing, so you can put that one to one side and concentrate on the other. But that being said, there's some fascinating ideas in here. If you grew up reading Starlog, the pastiches of Starlog magazine, right down to actors saying dumb stuff like, well, I don't really think about it as science fiction in a magazine aimed at the science fiction audience. All of that, though, is pleasant and correct. 
And then the final chapter is just Dan talking about what his his inspiration to this was and the idea that what if Star Wars hadn't been successful and George had made Splinter of the Mind's Eye and that we could have got Sean Connery as Bond again in the 1970s and in an alternate reality, Spy You Love Me is Roger Moore's Bond going up against Spectre. And that's where the idea came from. And he's got a, a bibliography at the end of further reading, some of which sounds absolutely fascinating and some of which I've already read. So that's, that is Wavelengths by Daniel A. Dickholtz. It's well worth getting a copy of. As I say, if you can get it in the magazine format, I think you may be able to. I'd have to ask Dan that. But if you can, that's probably the preferred reading. But it's brilliant. It's really good, really enjoyable. And there are so many little moments in it where you sat there going, oh, I wish I could watch that. Or, oh, I wish I could read that book. Which is surely a testament to how successful this is as an idea. We live in a world where the multiverse is now open to everybody. And in some cases, that's not a good thing. And in other cases, it's a very good thing. And this is one of the cases where it's a very good thing. Okay, should we have a look at the emails? We've got a couple. Uh, they're quite old now. I do apologise for the length of time that it is taken to me to get a new episode out of this. As I say, Hey Kids Comics is back. But the problem with Hey Kids Comics being back is that it's a very time-intensive show. Um, and obviously any spare time I have towards podcasting now goes towards Hey Kids. Um, whereas this is time-intensive in a different way. This is just me. So I kind of can fit it in and around whatever I'm doing. But it is heavily researched and scripted. I know it may not seem like it. But it is heavily researched and scripted. So a lot of times this show has to take a back seat. But there are episodes in the bubbling. I have got a couple of things that I'm working on. So hopefully we'll get back on something like a reasonable schedule. But Matt Prather emailed in back in December 2023. And we're now in February 2024. I apologise, Matt, for taking so long to get back to your email but matt says still enjoying your ongoing spider-man coverage the stern run is fondly remembered by yours truly but alas my copies of those issues are long gone tattered particulate matter floating in the air awaiting the call to be formed into hula hoop shaped projectiles before anyone judges me too harshly this predates my knowledge of bagging and boarding comics i read those books to pieces i would rather hear stories of people reading their comics to pieces, Matt, than hearing stories of people slabbing them. That's an entire rant that I'm not getting into. As for the editing of Spider-Man, I think it is something that is inherently present in the early stages of Spider-Man's evolution. This was my theory that editor Nick Lowe recently said of Spider-Man that um, the coming-of-age story was not something he read into the books. To which my response was, was you actually reading the books? Because I think it was a very important part of the, the mythology. In fact, just this day, I rewatched the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movie. And that's very much a coming of age tale. But he thinks that it isn't. And he's editing the book. So what do I know? Matt continues, it's not subtext, but clearly one of the foundations of his stories. I think the appeal of Spider-Man was his development. He wasn't encased in amber like Superman. He wasn't perfect, but aspired to be better. And how we've gotten away from that is probably a need to make the product that can be produced till the end of time with little innovation needed. I think you're absolutely spot on there. 
I think the fact that they've put the brakes on characters like that is very much because it's now owned by a corporation that just wants to produce this stuff in perpetuity with no growth, no development, no ending of the character. And I don't normally have a problem with that. You can tell Superman stories forever. But even over there, they seem to have realised that, you know, we can tell a story with a married Superman and a Superman that's got kids and a Lois that knows his identity and they're still Superman stories. In my head canon, and I've said this before, Spider-Man ended with Gathering of the Five. It didn't happen how we saw it. It happened how Tom DeFalco told it in the Spider-Girl strip. The Peter Parker we all grew up with is in, was in that strip, the Spider-Girl strip. And the guy that we carried on following and amazing was just alternate realities. And it's very easy to go with that because suddenly you go from the, the dreadful reboot where he's talking constantly about how much he's too young to be married. So they're clearly playing on the idea he's only supposed to be about 20 to the Straczynski run where he's clearly now in his 30s, back to brand new day where he's tw in his 20s again. So it's very easy to think of, well, these are just alternate realities then. But the problem with that is you have no emotional connection to it and there's no through line. You can still read them and enjoy them, but the emotional connection to those strips is gone. Have you any thoughts about the ultimate Spider-Man title being put together by Hickman? I have read the first issue of that. Uh, the first issue has come out since this email was written. And the first issue is really good. It's really, really entertaining. It'll be interesting to see how it does. I understand the first issue was already being speculated upon three days after it came out because you've got a book there that people are talking about. Comic book retailers have recently been bitching and whining and moaning that nobody's coming in regularly. You've got a book there that people are talking about that they're going to come in and want to buy. So as a comic book retailer, what do you do? You jack that to three times its price and then wonder why people don't come into the comic shops. But again, you know, that's just my philosopher. Um, I, I enjoyed it. I recommend it. Go and pick it up if you can. or just get the second print. If, you, if you're a reader like me, you don't care what print you have. I know I don't give a damn. Um, and let them sit on the many and multiple copies of print one that they've got. But thanks for Matt for emailing in and waiting this long to have a reply. The other email, Dave Gutierrez, from, also from December. <laughs> Sorry about that. Hi, fellas. Great episode. Oh, this is about the Doctor Who show that I did with Mike Bailey. Here are my unsolicited thoughts on the three Doctor Who specials. Firstly, I wasn't as bowled over as the others. I have to admit, I'm not the biggest Tenant fan. To quote a favourite episode of The Flash, how can I miss you if you don't go away? The problem with the first episode is how the Doctor takes a backseat to Donna and Rose. Here we had an opportunity to wow an expanded audience, and this is what happens. The first special should be Doctor Focus, similar to the 11th hour. Instead, 14 gets sidelined. I liked the message at the end, but save that for episode two. This is supposed to be a launch pad on a new network for a bigger audience, and as such, what a misstep. Episode two was fine. Save the money for episode three by doing a bottle show. And Doctor Who at its best is when it embraces horror. But then it's kind of petered out by the end, though. Don't worry, we'll see that again real soon. Episode three was great until it wasn't. This was the fate of the big episodes, Big Bad. The saving grace is 15's joy and charisma. But two doctors? How can I miss you if you won't go away? Best, David M. Gutierrez. Well, I think we're going to see Tennant again in the upcoming series. I don't think he's as retired as we have been led to believe. Anyway, that about wraps it up for this time. Thank you very much for joining me. 
hope you had a good time. I apologise for the lateness of the hour or the lateness of the episode. And I'll try and be a bit more on time as we go forward. But, you know, if you're bored and you want to hear me waffle more, Hey Kids Comics is right there. Go and listen to it. It's dead good, if I do say mo so myself. Take care, and we'll see y'all again real soon. Everything's gonna be fine, ultimately. Goodbye.